Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 28. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham and this is the podcast to inform, debate and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hello, I'm Eric Strong, assistant professor at Stanford University, and you're listening to Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. It's nice to be with you once again. Not getting the episodes out quite as quickly as I would have liked. I was aiming for four a month, but my workload is just simply taking over a little bit at times, which is not surprising as I'm in this new job, uh, which is proving to be as great a challenge as I expected, and that's just wonderful. Quite excited about this week's interview. This is with a gentleman called James DeCanto, James describes himself as an anesthesiologist and he's based at the uh, Medical College of Wisconsin. Um, He's a very, very experienced anesthesiologist and he's quite active out there on social media. Uh, Min LeCong has featured him quite a few times on his website, the farm website. We talked to him, I say we because it was me and my good friend Gavin Denton, we talked to him about lots of airway issues which you're about to hear so I'm not about to cover all that. Let's go listen to the interview and we'll talk again afterwards. James, it's thank you very much for, for agreeing to chat to uh, Gavin and myself. Um, I think probably the best thing to do is um, if we introduce ourselves to you and then you can introduce yourselves to us and then sure. we can uh, pick your brains of the various questions that we've got. Um, Gavin's probably going to shriek in horror now, but um, he really is the the man that I want to lead this conversation because um, he's currently in a role where he's getting a bit more airway experience than I am. Um, we are both um, critical care practitioners over here, so we've both got intensive care and high dependency experience, and um, I've been in that role or was in that role up until last October for about four years. Uh, Gav's been doing it for, what, a couple of years now, Gav, is it? Yeah, coming up to that now, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, I've, I've just jumped in your grave, mate. <laughs> yeah, so um, I've moved on. I've gone to the emergency department now, and I'm um, I'm climbing a very steep learning curve in the emergency department, um, and consequently not getting exposed to quite so many airways as I was. But Gav is um, tubing far more people than, than I am at the minute, so I think he's had... Um, He's had to learn from the bottom up, really, when he started, and I think he's encountered uh, numerous problems in that particular journey. So really, that's why we wanted to speak to you about some of the issues and just see, pick your brains about some of those things. So um, just as I've already inferred, I am now working in the emergency department. I'm working as what we call an advanced clinical practitioner in the emergency department. So we work alongside the the junior and middle grade doctors um, helping progress the patient's pathway through. Uh, We're all educated to master's level and have various examination courses and clinical decision things and all kinds of malarkey. Um, Gav, do you want to introduce yourself and just give us a little potted background just so James knows who you are and why we're here? Okay, so I I followed a similar pathway to Jonathan really. My my background's in nursing, Um, 15 years now, spent most of that in intensive care. Uh, spent around five years working on an intensive care outreach service, which basically is troubleshooting inpatients on wards outside of intensive care and uh, trying to initiate proactive treatment with those, trying to get them intensive care early or um, try to initiate basic care on the wards where the odd thing may have been missed and not optimised to try and prevent them from coming into intensive care. And um, I've been waiting for Jonathan's job for many a year <laughs> um, and I've finally got into my dream role working in intensive care in a job that 15 years ago when I was training we were just talking about um, and here I am uh, 
a portion of my role involves airway management. Um, I'm involved in transferring of uh, critical, crit critically ill patients that are intubated to other hospitals or to CT scan. Um, we're part of the intensive, the uh, resuscitation team, um, and we'll often take the lead with the airway within the resuscitation team. So m most of my airway experience, really, to be honest, is in during cardiac arrest. Um, um, but we do do, we are involved in RSI under supervision from a registrar consultant, um, which is probably about half of my intubations, but quite a few of them are in cardiac arrest now. So that's where I'm coming from. Um, I don't know, other than the fact that you're an anaesthetist, Jim, or anaesthesiologist, um, I don't know much about your background and where you've come from, so I'll be interested to know how, how you've arrived where you are today. Okay, sure. Um, oh, shall I uh, dive in here, Jonathan, or um, into yeah, center? go for it. Go for it. Is it James or Jim? Just to get that right. Oh, I, yeah, everybody calls me Jim, but thank you. You know, <laughs> I I feel like you guys respect me <laughs> when you call me Jim. <laughs> thank you. Okay. We can okay. call you sir, we can call you Doctor DeCanto. We'll show you as much as or as little respect as you feel you deserve. Uh, only if. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, if you call me that kind of stuff, that means it's that it's my problem. It's my fault. <laughs> you're the guy in charge. It's your goddamn problem, buddy. That's when you talk to me like that. Okay, all right. Let me explain myself. <laughs> Recently, I had a case. Uh, I'm an anesthesiologist. Uh, I guess in the you know the the British and the uh, Australians, you guys call yourself anesthetist. That's great. No problem here in America. We sort of took over the English language in our own way. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I always wanted to be a doctor, uh, so I started. A, I started a, a in. I went through college in, in the pre-medical track. Went to medical school for four years. Thought I was going to be a surgeon. It didn't work out. You know, I was on a pre-surgical sort of track. Ended up in the operating room anyway as an anesthesiologist, and I discovered that I had far more interest and far more impact on the patient's care doing anesthesia, especially because uh, very, very early on in my anesthesia training, I became uh, very, very entrenched and addicted to difficult airway management. We, In Chicago, we had a, a revolution in airway management training. We had the famous Dr. Ovasapien, the guy who started the Society for Airway Management, and across town from him at the place where I trained in Chicago was uh, is a guy named uh, Ganzuri, El Ganzuri, an Egyptian fellow. El Ganzuri and Ovasapien both were trying to transform medical education and anesthesia, that is airway medical education, to throw out the vestiges of the blind techniques and go to flexible fiber optics. He was trying to transform the education and as a result, and this is going to shock you guys, the only time I ever saw an airway intubating catheter, in other words, a bougie, was when it came out of the shirt pocket of the Irish-born, Irish-trained anesthetist. On the last day of his clinical work rotation, he was retiring that morning, and he pulled it out of his shirt pocket for a difficult airway, and he intubated the guy, finished his shift, went home, and never came back to work. And I never understood the implications of why he pulled out the Eshman reusable uh, what we call a gum elastic bougie, which it really isn't, but we all know what I'm talking about. It's the Portex reusable bougie. I never knew why we never saw that in Chicago. It was because it had come down from above. No one was to use anything other than a flexible fiber optic because he wanted to transform the hearts and minds of the residents to always go to fiber optics. This is in the early to mid-90s. Now, I got out of residency in 96. This is 10 years before the video laryngoscopic um, revolution. So how it is that we come to connect now on uh, social media is that after I got out of uh, training and went into private practice, I left with an absolute passion for uh, developing my skills and always asking questions and always asking questions and improving on what I'm doing. As a result of that, I began to video record what it was that I was doing, sort of like the way a professional athlete would record what they were doing in order to find out how is it that the uh, professional athlete can get better at tennis, get better at golf, whatever the sport. I began to record, and then I began to discover 
that I could record the vital signs and with the advent of all the video-driven devices, I could record the video output of those devices as well. So I had a platform of skill and as a hobby of video recording and I be, um, my basic base skill of using all these devices came from an insatiable curiosity to continue to build upon the skills that I built in residency. And my basic, basic, basic skills are based upon flexible fiber optic endoscopy. So the beautiful thing about that, and it's something you're going to have to understand about me, is that I don't have a fear of failure with any device because I always know I can go back to the flexible fiber optic. And this is just the way this this is this is the way I look at things. So I don't have to experience a fear of failure with direct laryngoscopy or with video laryngoscopy because I always know that I can go back to flexibles. And of course you can experience failure with failure with flexibles, but I can look at what I'm doing every step of the way to make sure that I know what is the point of no return. So this is sort of the way I always sort of look at things. What is the point of no return? And this is the interesting thing for you guys is, is what is the point of no return? Because you're starting to think about doing crikes when you, you know, I mean, a, a person in your situation, in, in Scott Weingart's, in Rich Levitan's situation, is when the, you hit the point of no return, you're marking the neck. You know what I'm saying? Who I am is a private practice anesthesiologist. I've been working since 96, so it's about, I'm coming up on 18, 19 years of clinical experience. I've been doing my own cases. Uh, I do supervise occasionally nurse anesthetists here in the United States. But generally, I do probably six, 700 cases a year on my own. So we're up in the, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand 9,000 range of cases, of which um, I don't know how many difficult airways I've done. It, it doesn't matter to me anymore. But, um, you know, they're in the thousands. So there it is. How many of those turns in, turn into a crike, do you think? Well, I've only done one crike in my career so far, and it was as a senior resident, and it was without the proper equipment. So um, I haven't had to do a crike yet, although I had a case on Friday in which I laid the equipment out to do the crike, although it uh, it didn't turn into that. Uh, we One of the major innovations that's come along that has made that not happen for me is that We've had an innovation in the LMA here locally. It's in came out of St. Louis, Missouri, and that's the AirQ. Because I'm such a big fan of flexible fiber optics, the AirQ is the absolute amazing rescue ventilation uh, and flexible fiber optic conduit for intubation. That is that that's one of the reasons why I, I haven't had to come to blows with anybody. <laughs> in other words, do a cricothyrotomy. That I haven't had to do that, um, but. Um, uh, of all the people in my department who's probably ready to do it, I'm probably the guy. Do you think that initial cricothyroidotomy some years back, do you think that would have happened today? That's a good question. If I inevitable? had, If it's the same patient, likely I probably would have had to have done that back then. Um, that was a very unusual case, and in retrospect, uh, there, there may have been a way that I could have intubated that patient, but... Uh, that was a very, very unusual case in which uh, I was unable to open the mouth of the patient. I think the the surgical airway was the right way to go with that patient, and it was a thin patient. Um, and I was able to get into the trachea uh, without difficulty, um, just using the materials from a central line kit. Um, just a number 11 blade and a hemostat were enough to, to access the airway in that case. And that was a that was a that was a gift. That was a gimme. That was a very easy uh, cricothyrotomy to do. What, I had a I mean, uh, just just to say, uh, James, the impression I get from what you're talking about over there, um, maybe it's just um, in your particular practice, but the use of the fiber optic laryngoscopy it seems much more commonplace from what you're saying than it does on on this side of the water. Um, it's, it, would you say it's routine practice fiber optic, or is it laryngoscopy first, fiber optic second? Well, let me explain myself. I. Uh, when I was in training in Chicago, the, the Chicago mm -hmm. residency program was lopsided to emphasize flexible fiber optics. Mm. And, and as a result, the residents were over were encouraged to use the, to use them more so than probably were that's being used in other programs across the United States and probably also in Europe as well as the United Kingdom. In clinical in, in private practice, 
the fiber optics only come out when a predicted difficult airway or a unpre or not or or a difficulty with direct laryngoscopy is encountered. Now that we have, of course, video laryngoscopy, the entire emphasis shifted. And the difficulty now with, um, I, d I don't know, are you both in a university setting or in a private setting, or does it matter, or how does that work in your, in your, um, um, in your systems? Um, the we're, we're both very much, um, what, what happens is that we're just both working in a teaching hospital, so we are linked to uh, several universities through the teaching hospital, so we do get medical students coming through. Um, our master's degrees, we go through um, one, of the, one of those linked universities um, doing the modules with that university in order to achieve that. So yes, we're very involved with the medical schools on that side. Oh, I see. Okay. Just to go back, James, a little bit as well, um, you mentioned that the fiber optic scope comes out when um, somebody is predicted to have a difficult airway. I could throw that out on Twitter, and I know I get uh, lots of different answers. Probably Min might send me several documents very, very fast, I would imagine. How good are the um, difficult airway predicting models that we use anyway? I've, I've seen recently on Twitter that people are saying that it's actually quite difficult to predict a difficult airway. Generally, he's right. However, um, there are circumstances in which it's, um, it's so obvious that um, you don't need a model to predict that the airway is difficult. You can, you can look and you can see that, for instance, if you um, visited, uh, there's, probably parts of, um, there's probably parts of Europe, parts of the United Kingdom, that if you were to drive your car, you would know that the car would not be able to go down the road, correct? You know, I, uh, I was just in um, Phoenix, Arizona, visiting on vacation, and I also attended the uh, uh, Society for Critical Care Medicine conference over the weekend. And we went to a state, we went to a national park, and there was a part of the park that was accessible only by four-wheel drive vehicle. And we took a we took a tour uh, in a four-wheel drive vehicle, and it was clear to me that our the rental car wasn't going to be able to get over the top of the lip of the curb to get onto this trail. So when you it, if you could see that your car couldn't get onto the trail then you know it's a difficult trail and that you need a four-wheel drive vehicle. I think predicting difficult airways is the same way that you could see that the normal thing just isn't going to work. So if, if we're going to use these models that measure this and measure that and measure this, I understand that we could say, hey, you know, these models, meh, you know, maybe they're not so useful. But if it's completely clear, it's completely clear that person can't open their mouth. It's completely clear that they've got a hypoplastic mandible. It's completely clear that they have a fused cervical spine. It's completely clear that they make noises like a bulldog when they breathe. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know this is a difficult airway. But, but I, from a slightly different angle there, what if it's what if none of those things are completely clear and then you encounter the difficult airway? Because that that is the situation that you can find yourself in sometimes, isn't it? That the difficult airway isn't anticipated and Correct. that's when you can become in problems. And is that, is that then a good reason to always use the best piece of equipment you've got before you default to the, the more standard pieces of kit? Let me understand your question one more time. You, you say, you say, yeah, you say that um, difficult airway predicting tools are useful for somebody with a difficult airway, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But what about the patient who hasn't necessarily got a lot of those signs and symptoms and you come across a difficult airway? And that can happen from time to time, I believe. It does, yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that because I've been thinking about that myself for a little while. Sometimes that happens because you screwed up in the, the way in which you medicated the patient. Maybe mm -hmm. you didn't give them enough medicine to go to sleep. Maybe you didn't give them enough muscle relaxant. Maybe you didn't position them right. Maybe you're not standing in the proper position. Maybe they're slid, they slid down the bed and you pull them to the top of the cart. There's so many different reasons why what you're trying to do doesn't work when it should work. So, okay, all right. Major question comes when you're using the monitoring. Do you have the time to optimize everything? Does the patient have the time for you to figure out what you didn't do perfectly right to make all this work? Now, I've had it happen to me 
we uh, I live in Wisconsin, which has a very large amount of Nordic and Germanic and uh, people of Nordic and Germanic ancestry. I have patients that uh, could be six foot seven, and I've I, I've I can recall intubating a, a man who stood six foot seven, six foot eight, with a very long straight blade, and I couldn't intubate the guy, and I marveled at the fact that the distance from his teeth to his larynx were uh, so, uh, uh, so far that I, I didn't know that that could happen. And I, as a result, I couldn't see with direct laryngoscopy. I, this is pre-video laryngoscopy. I had to use a flexible fiber optic scope to do it. Did I optimize position? Well, in retrospect, maybe I didn't. But one of the interesting things that we've learned by talking over the last five years, uh, by talking to Dr. Levitan, by talking to Dr. Weingart, by sharing the educational modules on social media, is that we can all begin to realize the master class level ways of practicing airway management in the very basic level using basic direct laryngoscopy techniques. So anyway, if I were to answer your question, um, and does your question imply that I should be using, say, a more advanced device initially rather than direct laryngoscopy? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Okay. Is that the is that the question? You know, that's a difficult question to answer. That is really, really difficult. And here is the answer. Let me give you, for instance, I've formed a small partnership at my hospital with the Department of Internal Medicine, and many of these uh, physicians undergoing training at my hospital are um, destined to become hospital-based physicians. We call them hospitalists. They don't they don't do outpatient primary care. They just uh, they, they're either going to go into critical care medicine, cardiology, or they're going to do hospital-based medicine. As such, uh, they may be faced with uh, taking care of airways in the middle of the night. And the truth of in the matter is that many of them will never ever get enough repetition and enough training to handle uh, an airway uh, during broad daylight or in the middle of the night using direct laryngoscopy to be good enough to handle the airway. So I've made a conscious decision to train them specifically on uh, video laryngoscopy. So in the modern day and age, I think it really may come down to a specialty-based decision if it's going to be a specialty in which the, re the repetition is not expected to be daily, if it's twice a week, I, I, I realize in emergency medicine they may not get an airway uh, day on a daily basis, maybe even not once a week. But if it's, if it's very, very infrequent that they're getting the airways, if it's coming along twice a month, that's too infrequent for me. I think that we need to realize that we need to simply make the shift and we need to go to video laryngoscopy and we need to put we need to put these people in the best position possible to be successful on the first try because they're not necessarily the practitioner with the best skill set so they need we need to give them an opportunity to be successful on the first chance because on the second chance they're not necessarily, yeah, they might get it on the second chance, but they're probably going to have a lot more fear. And as a result, they're not necessarily, their skills, people's skills usually don't improve under stress. They get worse. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. People usually don't improve under pressure. They get worse. So what if we create a paradigm where they don't have to, by the time we hand them the technologically appropriate device for the problem, they're not shaking and, and shivering and suffering and worrying. You know what I'm saying? I remember a couple of years back, I think, uh, I'm not sure if it's the correct guy, but Ron Walls talking to um, Scott Weingard about um, on his intensive care unit he's become well, his policy mandatory that everybody uses video laryngoscopy and direct DL had kind of gone out the window and suggested that maybe that that should be the gold standard and people are intubating sub, uh, in a, not using the gold standard if they weren't using video laryngoscopy. Would you agree with that outside the context of anesthesia? I think so. I, I do. I think... Um... I, I think I would agree with with that. I think that, that that's the direction it's going. I also think that practicing in any anywhere outside of practicing outside of an operating room, I think um, 
the airway is much harder. I really do. I think critical care areas can be tremendously difficult. Let's face it, those beds are not constructed, and the environment's not constructed for you to perform procedures in those environments. Yeah. The monitors I mean, can be that the monitors can be mounted on the walls in such a way that you you yeah. essentially have to be careful not to bang your head on them as you try to maneuver around them to go to the head of the bed. If you're doing a central line, your potential for um, creating a central line infection is higher. I think. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of badness that can happen doing procedures when it comes to taking care of them in ICUs. If the bed's too wide, the patient slides over to the gutter, you know, and if people don't know that they have to literally hold the patient so that they don't slide over and their head doesn't turn, and uh, there's all sorts of chaos in an operating room. The operating table is made to contain the patient, and the environment is made to contain and do things. You're not in an environment that's intended to do things to people. Yeah. I mean, I from... Can I just take you back on a point there, James? Sorry to interrupt you there, Gavin, sure. but you've raised a really Talk. interesting point there because I'm working in the emergency department at the moment and uh, one of the um, emergency medicine consultants um, has expressed a desire to ensure that all the other um, senior docs start to intubate more because what happens at the moment is that as soon as a patient needs intubating that... Um, we end up calling ITU to come down and do it unless it's real dire circumstances and they need it like instantly. If they can wait a little while, we'll wait for ITU to come down, which is a less than satisfactory solution. So he's, he's um, wanting to make sure that they don't de-skill. And I think it's a really interesting concept and I'm not quite sure why it's never occurred to me before that those with the least skill should surely be provided with the best equipment to make sure that the process can work more smoothly for them. I've only ever seen a video laryngoscope being handed to very senior doctors to go and practice on an awake intubation on somebody. I've never seen them used in a routine way and it strikes me that yes probably your fiber optic scope is quite expensive but if we want more people to be able to intubate who get less exposure to the process, then giving them the best equipment rather than the worst equipment surely is the best way to go. I'm think I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm getting this, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, there's a few things that we sort of, let's say we all agree on this. Let's say we use the analogy that um, if we're going to go hunt, it'd be better to hunt with it. If we're going to hunt birds, it'd be better to hunt sh with a shotgun, right? I mean, okay, easier to hit the bird rather than um, with a 22. Um, I guess that's one way to looking at it. So it's a, it's just the, it's the right, it's the right tool. One of the things I want to make a suggestion to you in your department. I had an interesting conversation with a respiratory therapist at uh, we we have a regional meeting uh, for the Wisconsin uh, Emergency Medical Service Systems uh, here in Wisconsin. Um, it was, it's here this weekend. And I had a talk with uh, one of the ventilator representatives. And uh, I was talking to this guy, and I was saying to him, look, uh, the problems that occur in critical care management with airway management is the gap in which you're rescue ventilating, and then the intubation attempt begins. And it, the intubation attempt takes long enough that the patient begins to f desaturate. Okay, so what is the crack that the patient falls into? They fall into a crack where they get hypoventilated, hypoxemic, uh, hypercarbic, and then there's a big problem. So you guys are all following me, right? You guys are all on board with this. Okay. Yeah. All right. What if I made an interesting suggestion to you that? as a short-term, long-term project within your institutions that your goal would be to give your, give your senior colleagues the opportunity to use these devices in a no, essentially a low-stress, no-stress environment being uh, uh, adequately positioned and oxygenated and medicated patients so that they are familiar with the devices so they can use them and there's no fear of failure. When they have to, when they when they have to handle a difficult case, that's number one. But number two, do do you have you do you have mechanical ventilators in the emergency rooms, or do you have to bring them upstairs? Do you are you all is it all bag valve in your department? Uh, we 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 can bag valve. We can put them on the basic uh, ventilators, but ultimately, if they're going to be ventilated for any prolonged period of time, they'll go upstairs. Yeah. Okay. So what what kind of basic ventilator do you have? Let me ask you this. What kind of basic ventilator? 
Um, the, the basic transport ventilators essentially. Think A and E's quite different in this. Sorry, emergency departments quite different in this country in that we usually even with very very sick patients, where they're only usually there for a few hours before we move them to the intensive care unit. So okay. once a patient's intubated, we they usually want the patient out and in the intensive care unit within an hour or so. Very okay. as quickly as possible. So it's so, usually transport ventilators we're using most of the time. Right. Okay. So what what model, for instance, what model ventilator? Uh, new pack, venti pack, very very, mm -hmm. very basic. The kind of thing you basically carry in an ambulance. Okay. All right. One of the reasons I'm bringing this up, one of the things I'd like to emphasize is that a machine can always do it better than a human, and I'm talking about ventilation. And what I'd like to suggest is that if we can talk about how to use the basic ventilation equipment we have set to the mode of a resuscitator, what we can and we can teach uh, proper mask ventilation with two hands, with proper jaw thrust, proper use of oral airways, there is a potential here for you to reduce your apnea times from going from face mask ventilation, jaw thrust, uh, good mask fit, setting... Um, uh, uh, ventilatory rates to say 20 breaths a minute, set your ID ratio to 1 to 1, set your pressure limit to 20 centimeters of water, set um, so you're getting a, t a minute ventilation of 10 liters a minute. It's in the resuscitator range. It's not a normal minute ventilation. It's a resuscitator ventil minute ventilation range. When you and set your PEEP say to six or seven, five or six or seven, it reduces your need for an oral airway. What you can do with a system like this is you can induce anesthesia. You can begin to bring your you bring your hands up under, you jaw thrust, you get a good seal, you see CO2, it's important to use CO2 monitoring, of course. And you ventilate, you ventilate, you ventilate, you ventilate, you wait until the muscle relaxants work. You check the vital signs and make sure that the patient's not coming hemodynamically apart with induction or with ventilation. If they get hypotensive, you give a push dose presser to treat it. You hemodynamically keep them completely together, completely together as you're anesthetizing them. And there's a payoff here. There's a payoff here with there's no danger of a peri-arrest condition from hemodynamics or hypoxemia or hypercarbia, and there's a payoff that if you have them adequately anesthetized enough before you go into the airway, dollars to donuts, they're not going to vomit. I believe that a lot of the problems with vomiting is that we're trying to instrument airways without adequately anesthetizing these people because we're trying to rob Peter to pay Paul is the expression. We're trying to skimp on the induction meds to not uncouple the hemodynamics. Why don't we give what we need to give, monitor the hemodynamics, treat the hemodynamics, and just make sure that everything comes together? Anyway. So are you kind of suggesting that, that that one minute of apnea while you're waiting for your muscle relaxants and your, um, and your bonus anesthetic to work, that that's the window where everything can go wrong in that, in that time from the paralytic's gone in, the one minute wait, and then the, the, the blade in the mouth, the, that you think is one of the danger windows in the RSI. Ah, okay, now we're coming into an interesting thing. Now we're talking about something where you guys are given these drugs and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're, waiting and you're not ventilating. This is an interesting thing, and I think it's, it's, good, it's a big argument. And I'm not gonna, we're, we're not going to change anything with this discussion because I'm going to tell you something right now that may shock you. I don't hold ventilation on anybody. Nobody gets, I don't care if I'm giving you sucks, I'm giving you rocuronium, I, vent, I give you the drugs and I continue to ventilate you until I intubate you. I don't hold ventilation. I ventil I've certainly I don't, seen a couple of your videos using the oxalator and that's essentially the, the not necessarily the equipment but the technique that you're, you're looking at, I, ventilation throughout. I, I had been taught that. I had been taught that idea. I, I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I will continue to ventilate these people. The only way, if you wanted to do what you're doing, the only way to do it safely, essentially, would be to BiPAP style ventilate them before you gave those induction drugs, because you would need to essentially, you would need to BiPAP them 
all the way up to the point of the administration of the induction and, and the uh, paralytic. And if you want to hold ventilation then, okay, well, you could do that. But the only way to do it safely is if you bypass them. You'd need to peep them. You'd need to severely assist their ventilation prior to all that stuff. And that, you know, that's what you would need to do. I don't know if anybody's going to do that. If you does, does apneic oxygenation change that problem? Um, gosh, you know, I don't know if it does or not. I don't know. I know there are those who believe it does. I know there are those who believe it do. But I would only change it if the airway was open during the apnea period. If the airway is, a, if essentially, if you put the nasal cannula on at 15 or 30 liters a minute, but it's an obstructed airway, the oxygen is not going to go around the base of the tongue and into the trachea, right? It's not going anywhere. It's If it's an obstructed airway, it's an obstructed airway. Okay. Um, just to clarify one or two things there as well, because um, I had a conversation with Min Lekong about this probably about a year ago. Talked about, you know, th this concern about um, you, you ventilate constantly because there's often a concern that you're going to make the patient vomit if you don't hold the ventilation, which is what I was taught. Um, what are your thoughts on cricoid pressure these days? Is that something you do or don't do? Generally, no. Generally, I don't use it. No, I do not. Um, I'm, I am careful. Um, if I do have a patient who has a full stomach, I do, I do take care of patients with uh, bowel obstruction. And when I anesthetize them, I'm, I'm careful about how I ventilate them. I think it's very, very important to um, ventilate very gently. I, I think what is actually more important, and this is from my own clinical experience, N equals, you know, me, N equals one, I believe that if the patients aren't properly sedated, properly sedated meaning properly medicated, properly relaxed, properly given the uh, proper amount of whatever induction medicine you're given, proper uh, muscle relaxant, if you don't treat these people well, they're going to barf. You have to be very, very, very careful. I think if you're if you're overzealous with anything, they can they can vomit. And um, I I don't have enough. The thing that I don't have enough experience with, which limits what uh, the applicability of what I'm saying to what you do, is I don't have enough experience doing airways down in the emergency department. I don't have that experience. Our emergency physicians uh, handle it themselves. They, they've done a lovely job. They very, very, very rarely ever call for help. They use video laryngoscopy. They use flexible fiber optic uh, endoscopy. They, they do a great job. Yeah, this is. Th I, I realize that what I'm saying may be controversial, but uh, I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that my observations is that if you don't, and this is a challenge because I realize that you have a limited number of medications that are available to you. And you're also worried that if you give them in too large a dose, you're going to basically polish off the patient. I understand that. But if you're not sedating the patient appropriately, I think you're going to create a new set of problems. They're going to have difficulty with direct laryngoscopy. You're going to have difficulty with vomiting. You may have difficulty with ventilation. So I think, you know, the next level the other thing we end up talking about is we start talking about how do you do hemodynamic support. And one of the things I was thinking about doing today was doing maybe my own little video that I could contribute either to you or to men on how to mix up and how to use push-dose pressors, for instance, because um, although my hospital provides them prepackaged, they don't provide anything beyond phenylephrine and ephedrine. Um, I, could, I, can, um, I can certainly make it easy to show you how to mix up epinephrine in different strengths and how to, how to use that clinically and how to have that ready or how to even use vasopressin as a push-dose presser because I do that as well clinically. Wow, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Just to go back to basics a little bit, Jim, because this, this is what I think the, the nub of the problem we have over here, what's happening is that there is an increasingly diverse body of people who are wanting to manage airways because for lots of different complicated reasons, the the medical model in this country is struggling a little, and as a consequence, other people are becoming more involved, people with other medical backgrounds. If you were going to start somebody on an airway training pathway, where would you have them start? What would you have them do? 
is this in the context of just take uh, in the emergency department, or is this critical care, or is this in the hospital? Let's, or, or, let's, let's start with the critical care environment. Essentially, they're going to begin with flexible, uh, excuse me, they're going to begin with uh, a video uh, laryngoscopy system, likely based on a... Uh, are you talking a hyperangulated blade, or are you talking about the, the direct blades? You're asking the right the, question. The kind of... I was about to get there. I, I, I would start them on a video laryngoscopic, uh, excuse me, a video laryngoscopic system based on the MAC shape. It's the most simple way to do it. I do believe, and I've seen, you know, I've seen pretty much all of them that have come, I've seen all of them in North that have come through this part of the world, you know, because you guys have different stuff, by the way. There's some different stuff overseas that I've never seen in person. Uh, although every now and then I'll see something because I know enough people that they'll bring it in and show it to me because they want to know if it's worth their while to import it. Uh, I'm just the sort of person that's a resource to some companies that they'll, that they'll show it to me and I'll say, yeah, I don't know about this one, you know. <laughs> don't bother with it, I'll say, in some cases. Um, the Mac is is really, 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 the, uh, the Mac shape really, uh, you can't beat it. It is the simplest. It really, really, really is the simplest. There are some other ones that are hyperangulated. Glidescope just changed their blade shape. They came out with something called the titanium, and we're having a little bit of a problem with it at my hospital, unfortunately. The reason we're having a problem is they changed the shape of the blade a little bit. We went from something called the cobalt, which is a disposal, uses disposable plastic covers that goes over a flexible fob, okay, the tip of those blades are wide and they're made of plastic. And because they're made of plastic and they're wide, they get sticky and they, when they touch the tongue, the tongue sticks to them. So you can depend upon the fact that the tongue sticks to it during airway management. So when you move the blade, the tongue moves with the blade. But the titanium is made out of metal and it has a very interesting little stippled surface which makes the blade slippery and the blade is narrower. So now what happens is that the tongue doesn't stick to the blade anymore and the blade is narrower, so the tongue is now sliding around the blade. So our my partners are needing to learn a new technique to use the new version of the Glidescope blade. Okay, so I just thought I'd share that with you. I, I, I find it very interesting, personally. Um, uh, so once, you, once you've got them learning with the video laryngoscope, um, presumably, is it literally a case of handing them the video laryngoscope and saying, okay, away you go, or do you do it with the video laryngoscope first and then have them view it on a screen, or, or what's your approach for that? I would begin in simulation. I'd begin in simulation, and I would begin, and the, the simulation lab that I have has multiple mannequins. The mannequins are all different and I don't know if any ever if you all have the enthusiasm or the money to do this but it's important if you're going to do simulation to create different simulations to create different reels. If you simply have one mannequin that's a starting point for learning. That is not one mannequin does, does not equal a lab. It simply equals a stopping off point. You need different scenarios. I have a tremendously easy mannequin. It's a Laredal uh, child mannequin. It's a, like the size of a seven-year-old child. And then I have a Laredal difficult airway simulator. And then I have a uh, recess, uh, she's called a CPR lean. Um, I think that that's a vital sign. I forgot the name of the company, Vital Signs or something. I think it's an Asian mannequin. And then I have one called a life form, which is so difficult that um, it's a video laryngoscopy mannequin for most people. Most people can't DL this mannequin. So I have a four levels of difficulty. So the, the question is, is um, you know, what I would say is I would go in simulation and I would show them how to handle suction, show them how to handle a styleted tube with a uh, rigid stylet, uh, probably like a Glidescope stylet. I'd show them how to handle the blade then we do some cases together. And here's the next problem with teaching this kind of stuff. You think you're teaching a procedure, but when your, when your student meets this patient, you don't know how well they're going to get along. And let me, let me explain myself. And I, I think you guys all, you, you guys don't know how they're going to get along. And let me explain myself. You can have somebody walk right up to the patient 
and they're they just go through the the motions. They do what they're supposed to do. They do the procedure, and they're done. You have another person that walks up there, and they look, and it's like they're looking into an abyss. <laughs> You're thinking to yourself, "What the hell are you doing?" Start the procedure, and you have to start talking to them. And he says, "Okay, go ahead and open the mouth and put the blade in the mouth." It's it's like um, Gene Wilder in Young Frankenstein. Put the candle back. <laughs> Do something. Okay, right. So okay, so what I'm working on is a paradigm of teaching where I take a Yankower because this is based upon my um, experience teaching how to handle vomiting, I use a Yankower as a tongue depressor, and I put the Yankower in, I suction, and I put the Yankower in, I park it in the mouth, and I push like a tongue depressor, and then I put my video laryngoscope blade in under direct vision. I use the Yankower to help me as a tongue depressor, get the blade in, suction a little bit deeper, suction a little bit deeper, then if there's vomit in there, I leave it in, let go of it, grab the tube, put the tube in. Okay, so I'm starting to train them to do it the same way, which is what you would want to do. So how would I do it? Of course you'd want to start them in simulation. You don't want them to walk up not having either, either never have done this or never having done this in simulation, but also what you have to do is you have to build trust between the student and you. They have to follow your instructions. They have to do what you tell them to do. If you can't trust them and they can't trust you, it's not going to work. You're, this is not just um, the teaching these, criti these critical procedures is an incredible experience of mentorship. It's not just you teaching them how to operate a vacuum cleaner. This yeah. is an incredible transformative thing for these young men and women who are learning this stuff. You've got to put them in a position where they can uh, psychologically and mentally handle what's about to happen. I was just going to say, I mean, certainly the, the first 20 or so intubations that I'd done, um, it was very much a, a learn-as-you-go experience in terms of how you open the mouth, how you hold the blade. That there, there was nothing in is literally a case, here's a laryngoscope, put it in the mouth, see what you can do. Um, and I, I think particularly when you're talking about trying to train people to intubate that aren't going to do thousands of intubations, who, like myself, are probably only going, going to intubate two or three people a week, that to try and give them some kind of optimised competency on a, a learn-as-you-go kind of platform that is simply not a, an efficient way to try and give them a base and foundation, but that seems to be my experience so far. Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing, but we, through the discussions we're having here, we may open a door where we may, um, uh, you know, I don't know how much we can change the world together, but uh, if we don't ask the question together, nobody else is going to ask the question. Let me let me give you an interesting story. This, I'm a senior resident. I'm uh, we were in an interesting hospital in Chicago, Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's. It's um, it's a big residency in anesthesia. And I'm, we're called to the emergency room in the middle of the night. And the patient is in the emergency room. And we're given no clinical information at all. And I, I go into a... The clinical information we're given is the patient is seizing. So I go into... I've got a junior resident, two junior residents. I'm the senior resident. We go into this stall. The patient's n not a, being attended by anybody and the patient's seizing. There's no oxygen on the patient, and there's no monitoring on the patient, nor is there actually any monitoring in the room. This is uh, 1996, by the way. There's, there's not a pulse ox in the room. There's, there's no monitoring in the room. The patient is seizing and unattended. Now, the Sounds patient like had... to me. <laughs> right. So the patient's vomiting, but she's not just vomiting. She's vomiting activated charcoal. So... I look at the situation, and I don't think there is actually any suction available either. So my junior resident, who's now actually, this guy is um, um, actually in anesthesia. This guy is, um, I think he's actually one of the associate editors of uh, the Journal of Clinical Anesthesia now. <laughs> so this guy, 
this guy is a, he's not a schmuck. Um, he goes to the head of the bed and he stops and he looks down and he freezes. And so what I did was I just went like this. I took my elbow and I just went boom. Grabbed <laughs> <laughs> three and I put it in her mouth. I put the tube in right over the top of the charcoal. <laughs> Hooked it up and put the bag on. And we didn't have capnography. You basically just had to just look. I mean, I, and this is pre pre-monitoring days, I guess, you know, and I got the tube in, and it's just one of these things where it was just, um, I just wasn't going to let anything stop me, whereas he was, uh, he, he was just struck by the enormity of it all, <clears throat> and you have to realize that that's going to happen to people, is they're just going to be shocked by the enormity of what's in front of them. There's not very, there's, there aren't very many people who just are not going to be, let anything, I'm not going to let anything stop me. I'm a, I'm a rare individual. It doesn't make any difference to me what's going on. I'm going to be successful. That's it. Uh, <laughs> that's all I can James, tell you. you're clearly very passionate about the airway, and it's fabulous to be able to talk to you. Unfortunately, I'm running out of time, I'm afraid. Okay. So I, I, I don't want to stop you because I could talk to you for at least another hour, I'm sure. sure. Do you think we might possibly do this again in the very near future and just continue this conversation on? Because it, it sounds like you've got a lot to to teach me and my audience and myself and Gavin as well and I, I love a lot of the ideas you've come across with already and it's given me a lot of food for thought. Yes, absolutely. Would you please send me an email that um, I haven't really been looking at your blog. You have a blog, don't you? Or I do, or... yeah. yeah. Send me an email to your blog because I haven't had a chance to really look it over and I I, I uh, would like to contribute to you if, if you um, if you have questions or you need content. I'll contribute to it in a, in a meaningful fashion um, because one of the things that has been um, uh, that I have liked that, that that that's been meaningful to me is I started contributing to Scott Weingart's blog and then yeah. Minley Kong came out with his blog and then he and I have been like um, uh, pen pals across the water you know yeah uh, we've really formed a friendship over overseas together where I said, well, hell, if this guy is interested in this stuff and I absolutely can't, positively can't stop thinking about it, well, then now i got somebody to talk to. Smack US. Chicago. June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Nixon. Flower. Weingart. May. Rohi. Malimat. Levitan. Reed. Carly Rogers got the date June 23rd to 26th 2015 smack US Chicago book it now Wow James DeCanto, folks, wasn't that a wonderful interview? He covered an awful lot of ground there, um, introduced some new ideas, certainly to myself and presumably to Gavin as well, and hopefully to um, my audience at large. I hope you enjoyed it. I found it really interesting, as I said at the end. Um, I've got a lot of other things I wanted to talk to you about, but I've realised I've already kept you for over 50 minutes, so I'm not going to talk about some of those things. I'll perhaps cover them in my next podcast. It's just some news and issues around the critical care practitioner world, some of the things that I've been getting up to, but I'm not going to keep you any longer. Thanks for sticking me in your ear again, and hopefully we'll speak again soon. Bye-bye.